Uh, good to see you. Um, I'm going to jump right into this. Uh, I was in a store last week, shopping around in a store, and I noticed all kinds of stuff that they were hawking for Father's Day gifts. And in one particular section, there was a sign over the top of it that said the words must have. Must have. You ever see something built that way? Uh, companies maybe uh, pushing their latest and greatest products as a must-have. Now there are must-have clothes and must-have shoes and must-have accessories and there are must-have apps for your phone. The truth is must-haves span way beyond just the world of products. People have must-haves about other people. Uh, employers have a must-have list for their new hires. Brads have a must-have list for their prospective jobs. And of course, the most infamous must-have list comes from the world of dating. Uh, men have must-haves about women. Women have must-haves about men. Um, I recently read that the, the top three must-haves that women are looking for in men are average height, slightly full-figured bodies, and gray hair. Must-haves are the essentials. Um, they're the non-negotiables. Now, when it comes to uh, developing a great relationship with Jesus, it does include some non-negotiables. It includes some must-haves. Now, we're in this series called Soul. I'm talking about the beliefs that are that are really core to our identity, core to who we are. And these are the essentials, they're the non-negotiables, these are the must-haves of faith. Now back during the Protestant Reformation, these core beliefs were described as the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for alone, or soul, or only. Um, in other words, these five solas were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the Bible alone has the unique authority to speak on these things, and all this is done for the glory of God alone. Now, today we're looking at this phrase, solus Christus, Christ alone, which means we are saved through Jesus Christ alone. Now, this belief, this doctrine goes all the way back to the Gospels and the early church. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus speaks up and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the early church took those words to heart. And in the book of Acts, um, which took place shortly after the Gospels, Peter is testifying before the Sanhedrin, uh, which is the Jewish high court in Jerusalem. They're interrogating Peter about a man who had been healed. And they wanted to know how this thing took place. How did this miracle happen? And here's how Peter responds, Acts 4. He says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. It's by Jesus. And he goes on to say in verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's solus Christus, Christ alone. Salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Healing through Christ alone. Redemption through Christ alone. And that has been a core, must-have confession of the church since day one. It goes all the way back. Now, I know a statement like that can sound a little contentious. Maybe even a little offensive. 
in our culture today. To say that Jesus is the only way can sound arrogant. It can sound narrow-minded. And the truth is, there are some Christians that can be arrogant and narrow-minded. We can make judgments about other people without knowing them. And we can be self-righteous sometimes, sometimes even arrogant about stuff. And you and I can't be guilty of this as well. But the reason, the reason that the church has confessed solus Christus, Christ alone, for 2,000 years is not to be smug, not to be proud, it's not to be arrogant or narrow-minded. It's because of who Jesus actually is. Because of how unique Jesus actually is. So I'm going to walk through today, I'm going to walk through some only Jesus statements. Some only Jesus statements as a reminder of why Jesus is unlike any other teacher or religious leader in history. Extremely different. So if you can, jot these down as we go. Five of them. Here's the first one. Only Jesus is fully God and fully human. Only Jesus. Fully God, fully human. We confess him to be the second person of the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this tells us something incredible about Jesus. That he's not just another teacher or prophet as some in the first century thought him to be. As some in our day still think him to be. But he was God in the flesh. Fully God who has become fully human. And this tells us something about who God is. That God understands us. That God cares. And God cares about the human condition. He understands it very, very well. Sometimes we do tend to think that God is just simply too far away. He's too busy. Too busy dealing with other important things to be concerned about what's going on in my day-to-day -day life. <coughs> but Jesus shows us that that is a lie. God loves us enough to have become a person. He had a real body. He had real feelings. He had real parents. He experienced real pain. He faced some hardships, and he did not do this from a distance. He didn't do this from far away, no. He got up close and personal. He became like one of us. That's only Jesus. Only Jesus. Second thing is this. Only Jesus led a sinless life. Only Jesus. And what does that mean? He didn't gossip. He did not act in greed. Jesus didn't curse his neighbor. Didn't cheat, didn't deceive, didn't take advantage of other people. He led a sinless life all the way down to the heart, which means that the only Jesus who led this sinless life can deal with our real problem, which is our sin. Now, I know, I am very well aware that sin is not the most popular word in our culture today. But we see it all the time, every day. All the time, every day. Anybody notice that the world is kind of not as it should be? You notice that you and I are not as we should be? There's a great writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton. This is what he said. Sin is the only theological concept that can be 100% proven. Just look around. Just look around. That's why parents run out of patience with their kids. That's why people use promiscuity to deal with loneliness. Why greed and the lust for power are like epidemics in our world. And the list can go on and on and on. No matter how hard we try, no matter how much we try to modify our behavior, we cannot fix our own hearts. There's nothing you could ever do to be good enough or holy enough to relate to an eternal holy God on your own. Only Jesus 
led a sinless life. Only Jesus is able to take on our sin, and only Jesus took it to the cross for us. Only Jesus truly dealt with what separates us from God. And there's no one else like us. No one. It's the third thing. Only Jesus defeated death. Only Jesus defeated death. If you go all the way back to the time of the first century, you would find that um, Jesus was not the only person that people believed could be a Messiah. The one that God would send to deliver the people from Roman oppression. Now, scholars believe that there may have been as many as five or six Messiah wannabes who lived be, you know, around within a hundred years of the life of Jesus. And there were certain patterns to these would-be messiahs. They all called people to deepen their faith. They all believed that God would restore the kingdom back to the people. Anybody want to guess what happened to all of these messiah wannabes? They're all six feet under, aren't they? They were all killed by the Roman government or killed by some rival faction or something like that. And if your messiah was killed, you had two options. You could join a dead messiah recovery group, or you could find yourself a new and improved messiah. Because if you're following a dead messiah, it means you're following the wrong messiah. So when Jesus, when Jesus, the one that many believed to be the true messiah, when he was arrested and executed on a cross, and then buried in a tomb, what do you think his followers were thinking? We have the wrong guy. We've been following the wrong guy. For Jesus to die and be buried meant, in their eyes, that they had given their lives for a lie. They had the wrong guy, which is why they fled and why they were devastated when Jesus nailed, got nailed to that cross. But then something significant happened, didn't it? Yeah. And we can see this in the historical records. These same people began to gather together again. And they weren't just gathering together again in order to share stories about old times sake. Now they left their occupations. They sold their possessions. They devoted the rest of their lives to this one message that Jesus had died on the cross and he was buried in a tomb, but then God raised him back together, back to life again on the third day. And they saw him. And they saw him. They talked to him. They were with him. They could touch him. They could share meals with him. Look how this is, uh, Paul writes this in uh, 1 Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 15. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, listen to this, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. So Paul, in essence, is saying, if you don't believe me, if you're not buying this, go talk to all these people that were there. They saw him. They were with him. They had a meal with him. You can ask them. This was their life, and they were all there. Jesus was raised from the dead. This is not just another Messiah come God. No. He is the one and only resurrected Messiah. And this makes Jesus different than any other teacher or religious leader in history. He alone, Christ alone. There's no one like him. All right, so only Jesus is fully God and fully human. Only Jesus led a sinless life. Only Jesus defeated death. And here's the fourth thing. Only Jesus is Lord. Say those words with me. Only Jesus is Lord. After the resurrection, the followers of Jesus began talking about him in a very, very particular kind of way. 
They didn't just address Jesus as sir, or teacher, or captain resurrection, or anything like that. They called him Lord. They called him Lord. You might think, well, what's the big deal about that, really? Isn't that just kind of a word to show respect and say that, hey, we really think a lot of you and respect what you've done here? The word Lord was different than any other word in the first century. Unlike their Roman neighbors who were polytheistic, believed in many, many gods, the Israelites worshipped the one true God, Yahweh. And the Greek word they used to translate that name of God, Yahweh, was the word kurios, which is the word Lord. And because they reserved all of their worship for the one true God, it meant there only could be one person that they called Lord. Only God could be called the Lord. There's only one Kurios. When I was a little kid, uh, one of the games we used to play was called uh, King of the Mountain. You may have played this when you were a kid. You stand on top of the hill, maybe a big pile of dirt, and other people would run at you and try to push you off the top. And if they could get you off the top, then they would be king of the mountain. That was their entertainment. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, folks. A pile of dirt is like a ride in Disney World, okay? So here's the deal about king of the mountain. Could only be one. There could only be one. Can't be two, can't be three, can't be ten. Could only be one. And the same is true when it comes to this word, Lord. There can only be one. Just a few examples from the New Testament. Listen to these words from Acts chapter 4. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Then in Acts 7, 59, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then from Paul's encounter, his salvation in Acts 9, it says, Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then from that point on, Paul followed suit, addressing Jesus as Lord in all of his letters. And there were a lot of them. He's always the Lord Jesus. Now, built into this one little word is this previously unthinkable notion that Jesus himself is the one true God. He is the Lord. He's curious. So when the Christians called him Lord, it was not just a statement about doctrine. It was a statement about how they intended to live their lives. They're not just calling him God. They were giving him authority over their lives because only Jesus has the power to change a life. Only Jesus has the power to restore marriages. Only Jesus has the, the power to, to break addictions. Only Jesus has the power to renew us from our brokenness which means only Jesus can be trusted to be Lord of our lives. We all look to something. We all look to someone or something as Lord, as curious. Who is yours? Who do you look to? What do you look to? We all trust our lives. We trust our worth, our significance, our, our, our success into the hands of something or someone we all serve something as Lord, and there can only be one. And I realize that sometimes we struggle to hand over the most precious or the most personal parts of our life to Jesus as Lord of that area. And we sometimes struggle by saying things like, no, I know, I, I believe and I can worship him on Sunday, but give him control of my relationships, give him control of my ambition, my work, my career, 
my financial life, everything, Lord of everything? I don't know. I don't know. But the thing is, only Jesus can truly be Lord of your life. Because only Jesus can forgive you. Only Jesus can restore you. Only Jesus can lead you where you really need and want to go. Only Jesus can be trusted as Lord. One more. Here's the fifth thing. Only Jesus offers us a relationship with a loving God. Only Jesus. See, embedded in every other religion or philosophy is some way of us finding God. But Jesus is not just your way to find God. He is God come to find you. And he's come to find you today. No matter what it is that you drag into this room, it doesn't matter what it is. He already knows. knows what's going on in your life. And he wants to be Lord of that. He wants to invite you into relationship with him. The truth is, Jesus finds us in some pretty dark and messy places. Jesus often finds people in dark and messy places. Places filled with doubt and depression and sin and shame. But Jesus is the one guy who says, I love you. I love you. And I want to be with you. So much so that I would rather die than lose you. Which is why Jesus came why he took that cross on his back. That's why he climbed that hill called Calvary and gave his life for you. King of the mountain, there is only one, only one. Over the years, lots of people have asked me, how can you know for sure? How do you know for sure? I want to know for sure. I need proof. How can you know that you know that you know? And I'll say, at some point, you've got to take a risk. At some point, you've got to take a faith step forward and trust it with your life. I know that there's lots of people in this room, you've been married a really, really long time. Been married more than 20 years for Jamie. Okay? More than 30? Okay? Bunch. There's that moment where couples stand together at an altar and they're all excited and nervous. You know, they've, they've been planning it a long time. A lot going on. For some of you, that moment, that day, was before Jesus found you or you were inebriated, but that's a different message. <laughs> but they stand there, and they're excited, and they're hopeful, and some spend a long time planning the wedding. Some dragged your parents out of retirement in order to pay for it. <laughs> but they stay together, and they get to the point where the, where the vows come, and they say things like, I love you for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness or in health. But you know what? couldn't prove it. That moment, they couldn't prove it. There's no way to prove that kind of love until you receive it and walk in it, live in it. And the only way to receive it is to take that risk and say, yes. Say yes to it. And there's no way to prove that Jesus is Lord until you take that faith step and receive him and give your life to him. And the only way to receive him is to take that little step and say yes. Yes, Jesus. I recognize that you are what I want and what I need. So yes. In the book of Revelation, Jesus says these words, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's just there waiting for you. I stand at the door and knock. If you let him in, you will experience his unconditional love forever. So my question for you is, will you open that door? Will you let him in?
Will you let in this one Jesus, this unique Lord who gave his life for you? Christ alone. Only Jesus is Lord. But only you can decide if he's going to be Lord for you. It's amazing to me that God gives us that kind of liberty. He's Lord, whether you like it or not. But only you can decide if he's going to be Lord for you. And I would invite you to say yes. Why don't you bow your hands and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for showing us that only you can be trusted with our life. And God, I just, I pray, you know, that there are, if there are some folks here that have danced around this lordship issue, or that you give them the boldness to take that faith step this very day from just giving mental assent to, I kind of believe what Jesus is and did, to I want to hand over the keys to my life and allow him to be Lord. Because now I'm convinced that my life really is better in his hands than it is in mine. So God, I pray that you give all of us here, even those that are struggling with that decision, all of us here, Lord, give us the confidence, the faith, the trust, and the gumption to say yes. I give you the keys to my life. I want you to be Lord. I recognize that you are Lord, but now I want you to be my Lord. Help us to do that at greater and greater levels, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want you to stand.